One constant of my childhood was window shopping at the mall. Almost every weekend, Dad would take me down to our local mall where we'd start with a sample of bourbon chicken and maybe a bite of Auntie Annie's pretzels if we were lucky before Dad would start looking for leather jackets. Now, he would do this even in the summer in Florida if they were available, but typically they didn't hit the rack until September or October. But Dad wouldn't buy one then. He'd wait as he stalked them all winter season until finally pulling the trigger around March or April when they were at their lowest price. Then he'd add it to his closet full of leather jackets that he never wore. I don't know if he really liked James Dean or the Fonz, or he just had something against cows, but we did a lot of shopping and touching on those jackets. While we were in the mall, I certainly looked up to the shoe salesmen dressed like referees, and I would notice old stores making way for new stores, just like when the knife store closed and became the 3D poster shop overnight. As we walked through the midway of the mall, you could see the kiosks showing off the sign of the times when they went from pogs and styrofoam gliders to sugar bears and gold by the inch. Now it's mostly just phone cases and those people that want to rub lotions on your hand. But the end might be near as malls nationwide lose traffic to new means of commerce. And while that's alright, teens no longer have a place to loiter, which means instead they lurk. So watch out as we talk today about dollar stores, hot dogs, and trade wars as we drop a bomb on you, baby, and start joshing around. I remember vividly when one new store opened in the mall. It was called Everything's a Dollar, and it was the first dollar store I ever went in. I remember being in the store when a manager hollered out price check and four or five employees responded back, everything's a dollar. Some things in the store were a good deal, while other things were simply products that never found a home in the marketplace, like scented Brillo or off-flavored Yoohoo drink. Other things, though, were simply old inventory, like a kitchen apron showcasing President Nixon's face with the slogan that read, kiss the crook, or old CDs. I remember being in algebra class in eighth grade when a student came in and said, look at this CD I got from the dollar store from MC Sean. Now, this eighth grader emoting an aura of Alex P. Keaton didn't know that MC Sean was the one who started the hip hop beef between Queensbridge and the Bronx regarding who created hip hop music. Instead, he just thought he was the guy from that song Informer with Snow. Fun fact, Snow's Canadian, which I guess makes sense. These days, dollar stores have become big business. In fact, the three major dollar stores last year alone opened 1,800 locations throughout the United States. Now, the co-founder of Dollar Tree said that originally he saw an opportunity. He said when a customer walked into our store, they could just shut off their brain. They didn't have to think. They didn't have to calculate how much they were spending. All they had to do was count. One, two, three, four, five, six. I have six items and I have six dollars. I can buy this, which is kind of true, but you know, the government's got to get their piece. But that said, I'm not sure if dollar stores are selling convenience or instead filling that vacant space in food deserts and then charging the occupants a fee. Because it seems that cartons of milk at a dollar store are only 16 ounces, which prorates to $8 a gallon. Dollar store raisins are only 4.5 ounces. At big box stores, however, 72 ounces of raisins cost $10.50, meaning dollar store customers are paying 52% more. Now listen, I buy everything on a per ounce cost and I'll drive all the way across town to save some change if I can, but not everybody has that luxury of time and space. So let's watch out for our fellow man, unless you've got yacht payments and then stick it to everybody, bruh. While dollar stores seemingly grow on trees, 
it might be a warning sign that the economic headwinds are starting to slow. Now, should we go backwards into another recession? I will be very eager to jump back into the world of extreme couponing. This is where you clip as much as you can from the Sunday papers, and then you compare prices from various stores around town. I used to use a website called couponmom.com that would show you the highest yield, and there were many cases where I could go into a store and get money back. But at a certain point in time, my time was more valuable than that money, so I did give it up. But you better believe that if I had to, I could get back there in a minute because I am such a spendthrift, my password is cheap. While my extreme couponing days were at the height of a global recession, I also had two kids in diapers on formula. And with that, you definitely need coupons because having babies is like a personal recession. In fact, for some, it is the Great Depression. With interest rates rising and stock markets cooling, we may be heading towards an economic downturn. Thanks, Trump Baba. But with that, I'm reminded of something I heard during the last Great Recession while listening to Marketplace by American Public Media when Kai Rizdahl was interviewing an economist just as the excrement was hitting the oscillator, and that economist offered this advice. When markets get tough, don't just do something. Stand there. This economic exacerbation isn't eased at all by a brewing trade war which began when the United States started placing import taxes on steel and aluminum from Europe and other U.S. allies. In response, Europe opted to levy some tariffs of their own. Now, you've heard about Harley-Davidson's response to their tax that went up from 6% to 31% on motorcycles being imported into Europe but it's bourbon producers that might be hit the hardest. Now, large producers like Sazerac might be able to weather the storm of their tax going up 25%, but smaller distilleries aren't gonna be able to make it. Now, the importing of bourbon has really grown in popularity as of late, with half of the imports going to Europe. Now, what's interesting about bourbon is because it takes so long to age from three to eight years, distillers have to forecast how much they're gonna make based on the demand. So watch out here in the States, the prices of bourbon might start to get slashed as people in Europe go back to drinking scotch. I pray it doesn't come to that though. Otherwise, the collision of my thriftiness and inability to handle brown liquor could put a damper on my liver and livelihood. Just like champagne and cognac, bourbon by nature is defined by region. And while bourbon's legal definition varies somewhat from country to country, many trade agreements require the name bourbon to be reserved for products made in the United States. In fact, as of 1964, the U.S. Congress recognized bourbon whiskey as a distinctive product of the United States. While bourbon may be made anywhere in the U.S., it's strongly associated with the American South and Kentucky in particular. In addition to being made stateside, bourbon must be made from a grain mixture of at least 51% corn aged in new charred oak containers, distilled to no more than 160 proof, and bottled at 40% alcohol or more. And if all those conditions are met, With July 4th coming up next week, that was a fitting history on the spirit of America. With Independence Day on the horizon, we're bound to hear a ton about all things American, from baseball, hot dogs, to apple pie. And while I believe in baseball and apple pie, from what I know about how sausage is made, I don't see how hot dogs can be an American treat, except for the fact that they were a popularized street food around the turn of the last century. 
and I guess they're made from a ton of different animals. So that's kind of an American ideal. Yeah, so there you have it. Hot dogs are the melting pot of foods. Unless, of course, the melting pot contains fondue. But I always assumed it was molten. Speaking of molten materials, shortly after the 4th, my family and I will be taking a trip to Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham was originally established as the smelting center of the South. Smelting refers to a process of applying heat to ore in order to melt out a base metal. Birmingham was such a hot spot for smelting that they erected a statue of Vulcan, the Roman god of fire and forge. Vulcan's the largest cast iron statue in the world, standing at 56 feet tall atop Red Mountain. You can see the statue of Vulcan from anywhere in the city. And while the smelting industry has given way to banking and medicine, it still is a force there in Birmingham. Though dominated now by middlemen, back in the day, each smelting house had in-house salesmen, which is to say that typically, he who smelt it, dealt it. And with that, allow me to offer a public service announcement. Don't pass gas right before sitting down. And if you have any empathy whatsoever, be sure to hold it if ever someone's following you up the stairs. Now would be a good time, though. So let's end the show. Glad I could be your informer as to what's going on in the world. I just wish it wasn't so extreme. If only we could trade war for peace, our depression might not be so great. While I wait for Weird Al to make a silent but deadly spoof of Week by SWV, clip your coupons and remember that a penny saved is a penny earned, yet a dollar has the most value at a strip club. So save your change and make it rain until the next time we start joshing around.